I think you're funny, Matt. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Dave Palmer, uh, Director of University Ministries, and just really grateful to get to be with you this morning this way. Uh, I, I want to just give a shout out and uh, a welcome to Kelsey Johnson, who is our new Assistant Director of University Ministries. And uh, I would just say she's a big answer to prayer. I'm, I'm relieved and grateful that she's uh, a teammate and uh, ministering to college students with us. So welcome, and we're psyched that you're here. Awesome. Oh, we've been doing a series uh, about communion, and this is uh, week three. And uh, th- our text this morning uh, is going to be from what I think is probably the most classic text on uh, communion. It's, it's in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul is writing to some uh, Christian friends in Corinth who uh, have a lot of issues, and one of the issues they have is around uh, how do you remember the Lord uh, through the bread and the wine uh, correctly, and so they've got a bunch of stuff going on. But basically, Paul gives us a really great summary, and so I'm going to read that text. You'll probably recognize it from what you often hear uh, when we do communion here on Sunday morning. So this is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, starting at 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you're hearing this for the very first time, as Jesus' disciples, as he's saying this live in action, um, there are probably many kind of mind-blowing statements that are embedded in what Jesus just shared, right? Um, He's just having dinner, and he's just drinking a very normal beverage in the first century, wine, um, because potable water is hard to come by, so everyone just drank wine, and why not? Um, And, got you, Tom, I like that, thank you. And, And bread, who doesn't eat bread? This is like the most common meal, um, uh, like pizza um, in, in the Philkins home. And, but then he says, this is my body and this is my bread, and that might be the thing that melts your mind. But my guess is if you're a disciple um, sitting around the table with Jesus, the thing that probably tripped you up the most about what Jesus just said is this line. This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. If a politician were to walk into this room and announce to us uh, this morning that he or she had rewritten the Constitution, it would have a similar effect to what um, these disciples just heard Jesus say out loud. Imagine if if a a politician did that, right? Um, First, you'd be thinking, oh, well, what's what's the Constitution now? Uh, What what does that mean for uh, us as Americans and all sorts of things, the implications of constitutional law, etc.? I'm not really a uh, well-educated in that, but I'm sure there are some in the room, um, and, and it would have massive implications. And probably the biggest thing you'd be wondering is, wh- who gave you the authority to rewrite our Constitution, right? Are you crazy, man? Uh, my understanding is that it takes uh, several um, different uh, incredible uh, majorities uh, within our elected uh, body to do something like that. So the idea of one person coming in and saying, this is the way it is, feels a little ridiculous. And I want to um, imply and suggest that what Jesus says when he says, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood is something on the scale of 10 to something times more um, mind-blowing than if someone were to do that here in this room. What in the world does Jesus mean when he says the cup is the new covenant in my blood? And for us, why does that matter? Those are the two big questions I want to get at this morning. To understand that, we need to go back to the very beginning of Scripture and to the narrative and understanding of God and who we are. From the beginning, from the beginning, God has intended to have a specific and special and unique relationship with humans. He created us humans as his own image bearers. No other part of creation is labeled as such. He gives us agency. He gives us influence and authority in his own creation in a way that no one else, no other part of creation does. And he calls his partners and co-laborers in his own kingdom, in his own domain, where he and his wholeness is meant to be fully expressed in all of its goodness. Co-laborers and partners. And in all of that, God intended that we would live in wholeness and thriving in relationship with him and in this kingdom where he's king and we understand who we are in him. The benefit of that would thrive, would would create thriving for every other element in the kingdom when we partnered with God in this way. And the first humans experienced it for a bit and then they opted out. They opted out of the agreement. They used their own agency to create definitions of good and evil on their own, something we're pretty good at, and they created their own kingdoms um, out of that. They set themselves, in effect, up as enemies of God and his kingdom and thriving of goodness. That was the first humans, and that is also still us. That's us. But God did not and has not given up on reestablishing his original intention and relationship with humans that he desired from the very beginning. Okay? And how did he do that? Now, in the First Testament, in the Old Testament, we see this clearly through the covenants that God made with people throughout history. A covenant. Um, When you hear the word covenant, it has, I think, probably a less powerful meaning than perhaps the people that uh, lived in the time um, of, of the Old Testament. A covenant is defined as a relationship between two parties who agree to a set of promises for the purpose of achieving mutual objectives. A relationship between two parties with a set of promises to achieve mutual objectives. And there were four significant covenants that were made that we know of in the Old Testament. Promises between God and people. Noah, Abraham, and his family, Moses and the nation of Israel, and David and the nation of Israel. And so this morning, I'm going to go through very thoroughly and review all four of those covenants. Thanks for laughing. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to give you a synopsis of how those covenants were written, okay? They generally looked like this. God promised the thriving and blessing he intended for humans in those covenants, and humans agreed that they would live like God intended them to live from the very beginning. I want to suggest that that is at the center of every covenant that God makes with his people. Now, there are nuances and specific strategy that God employs in each of these covenants, but at the heart, that's what's happening in each of these covenants. 
And the results of the covenants were predictable as follows. God always held up his end of the bargain, and humans always failed at holding up their side of the promise. The failure is and was a real problem because failure in this context has huge implications. Even at the very beginning, um, Adam and Eve and God did not make a, a covenant in the way that we're talking about it here. But, but the premise of their broken relationship is the same premise that happens whenever these covenants are broken. There are huge implications for us when we walk away from this intended relationship that God has designed us for. And there are uh, further, and I think God uses these covenants um, as a way of um, um, graphically um, helping us understand um, the, the broken promise that's at play here. It is a life and death situation, no small or conditional thing. So, when Jesus is with his disciples, sitting around the table, eating bread, drinking wine, and he refers to himself as the new covenant, he is speaking in the context of a history of failed covenants between God and people. Failed covenants. A long history, thousands of years of history, and his disciples would automatically tune in. Covenant would be a buzzword for them, connecting them to their own narrative and history and relationship with God that is more intimate than anything I think we can really imagine. And at the same time, he's proclaiming something new. He says, the new covenant, quite literally. But for the first time, he's identifying himself as the covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant. How can Jesus take on an entire covenant? We've just defined covenant as, by nature, being of two parties, correct? Right? It needs two parties to tango. And here Jesus is describing himself as the covenant itself. To appreciate what Jesus means, we need to go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham and how it played out. There's a lot of narrative with Abraham, but here is the gist of it. At a certain point, God comes to Abraham and he says, let's make a covenant. And Abraham says, okay. And the covenant went something like this. God promised to make Abraham's family into a great nation. Now, this was wildly um, interesting and ironic because Abraham was an old man and so was his wife, and they had no children. So, God, how are you going to work that out? So, that's interesting. Um, but, but on top of that, what he says is, I am going to bless your family so profoundly that you will become a blessing to every human that walks this earth. Incredible. Do you see how that's at the heart of God's original intention? And in return, Abraham's commitment was that he was going to trust God. Trust that God was going to do the right things for him and his family and that he was going to live as God commanded him to live. Does that also sound familiar? So that's the gist of the covenant. So this is how God um, inaugurates this covenant, this promise, with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to grab these specific animals. Okay, great. And then I want you to slaughter them. Okay. And then I want you to cut them up into pieces. Okay. And then I want you to create sort of a, a nice um, a symmetrical uh, 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 layout of these 
uh, slaughtered animals where their bodies are literally separated in a way where we can walk or a, an aisle between these slaughtered um, animal pieces. It's kind of interesting. Uh, and, uh, in the 21st century, it's pretty awkward. Um, and I, my guess is that um, if PETA were alive and well back then, it wouldn't have gone very well politically with them. But, um, but to Abraham, this is not a shocking setup. He knows exactly what's happening here and why God is asking him to do this. Because in Abraham's time, if a lord or a master were going to make a covenant of loyalty with someone who was subject to them, they would do this exact thing. They would slaughter animals. They would create a, a, an aisle to pass through the animal pieces so that they would make the promise as they were walking through these slaughtered animals as a very graphic reminder and demonstration of the terms of the covenant. Basically saying, without saying it, but saying it, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I am unloyal to this covenant. Whew, pretty graphic, pretty powerful. And so this is what God instructs Abraham to do. But here's the interesting thing in this, in this narrative that we find um, in Genesis. Abraham does this. It gets to be night. Birds of prey descend on the animals, so Abraham naturally has to kind of keep them off the carcasses. And he waits, and some mysterious things happen, and there's a shroud of darkness, and Abraham gets really sleepy. But here is what does not happen that entire night that the covenant is made. Abraham never once walks down the aisle of the slaughtered animals and makes any sort of promise. The most shocking part of this entire narrative in Scripture is that God is the only one who walks between the pieces of these slaughtered animals in this covenant promise. No lord or master in this covenant arrangement would ever dare walk between these pieces. That is not their role. Abraham is the one who is making a, a, a covenant of loyalty to, to God, to his master, not the other way around. And here we have God actually himself promising in this very visceral and tangible way that he would be the one that would uphold the terms of faithfulness if Abraham and his people were unfaithful to the promise. This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. This is God literally fulfilling and taking seriously the promise that he made hundreds and thousands of years before to Abraham, to his people. God keeps his promise to bear the weight of the curse that comes with us breaking the covenant. Jesus keeps God's promises and fulfills our commitments that we have failed to keep. This is the mind-melting thing about the new covenant, is that it is an already fulfilled covenant. God has filled our end of the promise through Jesus already. Where God pays the curse and shared all the benefits and blessing with us. So what does this mean for us? 
2,000 years after Jesus says this and does this on the cross and through the resurrection, what does this mean for us? This is what I think it means. The new covenant invites us into a restored partnership with God that must embody both freedom and commitment. Freedom and commitment. Here's the thing with the new covenant. There is no way into a restored partnership with God except through the blood of Jesus, what he has done for us. He is the only one that can and has and will fulfill the terms of the covenant with God. And so any way that we might try to seek to fulfill those terms outside of the blood of Jesus is missing the entire point of the covenant. Or perhaps you think you are un, um, perhaps you think that you are unworthy, unworthy of this offer. There is freedom in this offer, and Jesus has paid that price. The weight of failure is gone. Tim Keller, uh, a pastor, our former pastor, I don't know what he calls himself now. Um, in New York City um, said, Jesus fulfills the condition of the covenant so that we could be received unconditionally. Any reception of the new covenant outside of the context of freedom is not understanding or receiving what Jesus is offering to us. First, freedom. Second, The new covenant invites us into a restored partnership with God that must embody commitment. It must embody commitment. See, when Jesus refers to the relationship, to this new deal, he doesn't use the term deal. He still uses the word covenant, which still carries the weight of a serious, binding commitment between two parties. Jesus from the very beginning, the first time he started teaching and speaking about the kingdom of God, made it abundantly clear that kingdom life, that living life in Christ, always and will mean living by the terms that God has laid out from the very beginning, that Jesus rearticulated in a powerful, powerful way in his ministry on earth. He asks us to be faithful, to trust, and to obey every aspect of this kingdom life. That the very nature of our heart We must be transformed by Jesus. There is commitment. That unfaithful lives to this life that Jesus has called us to mock the awesome treasure that Jesus offers. That if we are to come and to um, identify ourselves with the new covenant as people who are receiving the new covenant and its grace, and yet fail to live into the life that it is made a way for, we mock that very thing it is meant for. So many examples in the New Testament of understanding this, but especially one that stands out to me is in Romans 6, where Paul is wrestling with this incredible new um, covenant, uh, grace upon grace, that all these sins are forgiven, even premeditatedly, And so he asks this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. By no means. See, friends, the new covenant 
The new covenant points back to God's original intention for us, that we would know and live in the fullness of God and his kingdom, living lives as he taught us to live, literally being his disciples, his apprentices, living the life he's called out for us, and, and, and living this life that he's, he's died for, fulfilling the terms of the covenant. The point of this new covenant is not um, so that we can have um, spiritual life insurance, so that we have some idea of confidence of where we're going to go when we die. The point of this is not so that we can um, be um, secure with God and then get on with the rest of our life the way we want to live it. That's not the point at all of the new covenant. The point of the new covenant is so that we can live now, today, in the fullness of the life that God has intended us to live in. To live in the Spirit by the power Um, We read this morning this passage from Jeremiah in worship where it talks about how the new covenant will come and the word of God will be written on our hearts that who we are will be transformed from the inside out. No longer do we just need to uh, 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 saturate ourselves with with words in a book but actually living in the fullness of God's presence through his spirit, knowing the fullness and restored partnership that God intended us for. That is the new covenant. It's not a future thing, it's a now thing. How incredible. And so, friends, as we come to the table, the Lord's table, and we can call it the Lord's table because this is not a two-party deal. This is a one-party unilateral covenant. This is the table of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, for us. Let us come with incredible freedom and confidence before the throne. And with the ambition and desire and commitment to live out this life that the new covenant made way for. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you would do what we could not do for us. Lord, we are so grateful that by your faithfulness, you have knowingly lived out the promises made to our ancestors so many years ago and restored your intention with us. God, forgive us as we so often um, come to your table Um, start our day in the morning and forget about this life that you have um, intended and invited us into in such a costly and beautiful and profound way through your blood. So Lord, may we come and receive it this morning, be transformed, refreshed, and empowered by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, that is what I am so struck by, by this really, really important word, this God of covenant, of grace, and mercy, and love. And as Dave said, that is what we celebrate at this table. Today, one of the things that we'll invite you to as we come and receive uh, the bread and the cup of the new covenant is after you receive communion, we'll invite you to come and that we have made some kneeling benches up here in the front. 
to give you an opportunity not only to come and to receive these gifts, but also to bow your life before the Lord. We know that sometimes our physical posture uh, helps uh, the posture of our hearts as we come and declare Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, when we read about uh, the first Passover meal, the people were told to tuck their cloaks into their belts and to grab their staff because they were leaving in haste. But even today, if you were to go to a Seder meal with Jewish friends, they actually recline at the table as a sign of their freedom in Christ, that they were rescued from slavery into freedom. But even more, as we come to this table, not only do we come in freedom where we know that we have been saved not only from slavery, but from sin and death, but we also can come in this posture of bowing before Jesus Christ as Lord. So we would invite you to do that physically with your body as you declare Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was eating with his disciples this Passover meal, remembering uh, God's rescue. And he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that has been poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us, as we read today, whenever we eat this bread, whenever we drink this cup of the new covenant, we are proclaiming Jesus' saving death, his loving death, until he comes again. These are incredible gifts to remind us of God's loving covenant that he made so many thousands years ago and has fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is a family meal. This is a meal for all those who trust Jesus Christ. And as we talked about last week, even if you feel like your faith is just hanging on by a thread, the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, come and receive these gifts. Be reminded of my love for you. I know you by name. So let me pray for you as you come, and then let me invite the servers forward. Oh God, we thank you for this amazing display of your grace that you have taken upon yourself all the consequences of our sin, that we might know new life now and forever. So God, nourish us by your presence, by the presence of one another, and by these gifts that remind us of your love. We love you, God, and we thank you. And we give you uh, our lives in gratitude. Amen. The ushers will dismiss you. Let me invite you to come forward. If you have children, even if they aren't ready to receive communion, we would love to offer them a blessing. But come and receive communion. And then if you'd like to, you can come up to these kneeling benches and come and pray, or you can do that at your seat as well. But now come and receive these gifts of grace. <laughs>